wasn't until the uh, the post-race press conference where I was sort of safe and sound and uh, sort of going back through the anecdotes and, uh, of the race that I was like, oh yeah, by the way, I almost died. <laughs> and and my wife was uh, was watching the the online stream. She was like, oi, <laughs> what's this? Counted the calories that we that we go through uh, just to stay warm, let alone for the physical capacity uh, to to sail the boat and raise the sails and hoist them and trim them and so on. And we're we're doing pretty close to an Ironman triathlon every day, um, and so you're going through you know, ten thousand calories plus per per day. There are three hundred thousand people, or six Eden parks of people that are lining the, the channel as we go out. So it just got this, this insane roar of humanity of people sort of wishing you well and sending you off. The last boat turns around and that's for waves goodbye, then you realize that uh, that's it, you're, you're on your own for the next three months. Hi, and welcome along to Broadreach Radio, the Yachting New Zealand podcast. My name is Michael Brown, and today we chat to Conrad Coleman, who astonished the sailing world with his feats in the last Vendée Globe, the single-handed non-stop race around the world. He faced a catalogue of challenges, from being swept overboard at night in the Southern Ocean, to constant capsizing when his autopilot played up, a fire on board, his mast nearly coming down in 60 plus knots in the remotest place on earth, being dismasted less than a thousand miles from home, and then running out of food. The crazy Kiwi, as he's known among the fleet, dives into some of these amazing episodes of misadventure, but also talks about why he wasn't among the starters for the present Vendée Globe, which started a couple of weeks ago, why he's desperate to compete the next one, and what the sailors face when they're on their own for three months at sea. It's a truly remarkable story, and he also tells the tale of his worst wipeout ever, which unsurprisingly happened on the Vendée Globe. So I hope you enjoy. Conrad Coleman, welcome to the show. Yeah, great. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Well... You know, we're in little old safe New Zealand down here. How are you coping with um, life in France? <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I've been here for more than a decade now, and uh, I love it. I have a great time here, but certainly um, the, the desire to get home to New Zealand has never been stronger than, um, than now. It seems like New Zealand has absolutely knocked it out of the park in terms of managing this COVID situation. Um, and instead, I'm sort of, I'm here with a bunch of hot-platted uh, uh, Latin Frenchmen who uh, who think that the, the government are out to uh, curtail them at, at, uh, at, at every possible opportunity. And, you know, we're, we're not quite as bad as America when it comes to thumping your chest and screaming for liberty, but almost. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of a shame. It's been um, this sort of recurring cycles of, uh, of lockdown and, and we're, we're locked down at the moment. So I uh, can't even go for a bike ride right now. Well, it's not exactly the year you had in mind. And I hadn't really envisaged talking to you, uh, certainly at this time of the year. 
and certainly not with your feet very firmly planted on the ground. Um, you know, the the idea was that you'd be careening down um, towards the Southern Ocean about now competing in the Vendée Globe, which started, oh, I don't know, about two weeks ago. So what are you doing in France rather than uh, turning the corner and heading towards the Southern Ocean? Well, it's uh, it's a big disappointment. Yeah, I... Um... My life has been dominated by the pursuit of the Vendée Globe for years and years and years now. Um, you know, I, I moved to France with the idea of becoming a solo sailor and uh, becoming a specialist in, in that discipline, which can only really be done um, here in France. Uh, as you know, I did um, two races around the world as a warm-up to the Vendée Globe, which I finally completed in 2016. Happens every four years, and uh, even before I put my feet on dry dry land last time, I was already dreaming about the the twenty twenty edition. Um, I went off to go work for the Volvo Ocean Race to get a, a bit of um, breath of fresh air. But um, even during my time there in twenty seventeen, uh, I was running back and forth to to London and and various towns in Germany, going and talking to uh, sponsors and partners and and uh, starting the very heavy lift of getting a full, uh, fully funded campaign together. And I that has basically uh, dominated every, every waking moment since I got back from the last one. Um, and I can tell you that we've got just heartbreakingly close at s- several different times. Um, and... Um, no, we we were going for a um, if not a, a new boat, a, a pretty competitive one. Um, and then as time started running out, and we sort of lowered our uh, lowered our aim just to try and get into the race. And then we chartered a boat and did a big refit on it last winter. Uh, still had ongoing uh, conversations with partners that were pretty keen on getting on board. Uh, and then COVID struck, and that wiped out all opportunities. Um, I then got uh, pretty far down the road with another partner um, who who was pretty keen, had the budget, had the desire to use the platform as a as a way of talking to the world, and, and then finally decided that the boat that I had chartered <clears throat> and entered the race with um, was not competitive enough, didn't match their their ambitions, and thus pulled out. Um, so. A uh, bit of a roller coaster of having things fall apart and then picking up the pieces and and charging on again, uh, but finally we had to pull the pin in uh, late July because it was just it just wasn't possible anymore. So how did you cope with that? Um, it's been brutal, actually. Uh, it's been a real struggle because it's been uh, several years of um, investing um, basically all my time in the pursuit of, of the, the sponsorship deals. And as an athlete, um, and as a, as a sailor, I'm, I think most people can understand the, uh, the concept that, you know, if you want to go faster, or if you want to push harder, then it's up to you. Um, the, the pressure is on your shoulders. And if you, you just sort of grunt up and, and do it and you have control over the situation whereby if you want to go faster, you work harder and you see the results, um, that follow that effort, whereas this was years of effort on my part uh, and no no results at the end. So that was it was pretty frustrating, particularly because I felt like um, you know I was relying on lots of other people to open doors and um, 
couldn't quite get the as as they say in France couldn't quite get the mayonnaise to work you know getting all of these disparate pieces to come together and, and gel um and that I think is a testament to to the fact that um e- even in the the really good global economy of, of 17 18 and 19 and um, that there are lots of different ways that companies uh, have to to get their um to get their message out there um sailing is is a pretty challenging property to sell on the global markets because um you don't get the this the guaranteed eyeballs that you do if you invest in soccer or football or, or rugby or you know it's a very different kind of pitch and and a lot of the typical sports agencies uh, don't really want to touch it because they don't they don't understand it so we we're going in there. I'm going in there as an athlete, as an, and as an entrepreneur, and as a, as a skipper, and wearing all of these different hats, and and trying to make the pitch to these companies and these agencies, um, and uh, they just don't quite get it. So there's a, I think the, there's also the extra challenge to the fact that I'm in France, and while I speak French fluently, and you know, I've made France my my home, um, I I'm still an outsider. And inevitably, that means that I'm talking to uh, English-speaking um, companies, and and they've never been exposed to this incredible sort of effervescent passion that that, that exists in France for the Vendée Globe and this kind of ocean racing. Um, so it's it's a pretty heavy lift. So how does uh, how does that event become more of a global one? Because it is. Full noise, as you say, in France, and, and if you look through the lineup of who's competing this time around, you know it's dominated by by French people. Um, you know, so how does it become something that appeals to those English speaking ones, or uh, you know, other parts of Europe? Well, I think that the the potential is certainly there, in the sense that it is a you know sailing uh, and particularly. Uh, ocean racing, I think, uh, when well described um, and, and well explained, can reach a really wide audience um, because you've got this multi-dimensional story where you've got high performance on uh, on one end, you've got ultra endurance, uh, you've got the technology story of, of man and machine and developing these high tech pilots that drive the boats at totally insane speeds. Um, and then you've got lots of photos of dolphins and sunsets, and there's the story of romantic story of of adventure and circumnavigation, and and sort of going into the into the wild blue yonder. Um, and having spoken with lots of people, I I know that that this this difference um, these different dimensions allow the the public that gets interested in the race to just to grow and grow and grow because there are lots of different in, uh, entry points into it. Um. As to how you create that audience, well, it's, it's tricky because you've got a very busy world. There are a lot of people are spending their time doing lots of different things, and it's hard to sort of get your head up above the parapet too. But once people get stuck into it, then then they absolutely fall in love with it. Um, and I think that there's this uh, entrenched um, audience and entrenched um, uh, passion for the sport that was created in France and to a lesser extent in England, uh, sort of back in the, the, the origins of, of ocean racing back in the 1960s. Um, you know, it was initially the, 
um, English sailors like uh, Sir Francis Chichester, who went around the world in 1967 for the first time with a stopover um, in, a, in Australia. And so that was the first solo circumnavigation with one stop. And then two years later, there was the Golden Globe and Sir Robin Knox Johnson, the English guy, um, won it going around the world uh, nonstop. And actually that sort of kick-started um, a, a revolution in, in France because, you know, we cannot have the, the Englishman taken over the seas. And so you, you had these hundreds of years of, um, of rivalry and animosity that sort of got channeled into... Uh, the French taking over the over the waves uh, because it was absolutely a desire to go stick it to the English that um, that meant that all of these races cre- started in France and 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 uh, and developed that French sailing culture. So it's, you, you sort of have have to have all of these ingredients that come together back when it was a simpler time in the nineteen. 19- 60s and 70s, where there wasn't that much competition in terms of sport and passion and eyeballs and all the rest of it, and that allowed them to uh, to get their audience and, and create their culture. Now, once it's up and running, then following sailing is just what you do, kind of like it is in New Zealand. So how closely are you following the, the race this time, or is it you know just a bit too painful that you're avoiding it at all costs? Um, personally, that's a that's a bit of a challenging one because uh, I I am following it very very closely. And I am doing a, a weekly column and and podcast on another website called Yacht Racing Life, um, and I am currently talking to potential sponsors and trying to show them the incredible uh, sort of sales pitch that is the race that's running right now, saying, "Hey, do you reckon you want to go and do this again in four years time?" And so the reality is I need to interact with it. I need to stay engaged with it if I want to have any, any future with the event and, and with the sport. Um, but honestly, I would be quite happy hanging out in a forest with a mountain bike right now and just seeing more green than blue. But, you know, there we go. So you've been been there. So what will the sailors be thinking sort of about now as they dive south and they, they're looking to round the bottom of Africa? Um, part of it is, oh my goodness, what have I got myself into? Um, because, uh, there are, there are lots of rookies, uh, this year and there are a bunch of people that are on their first, uh, circumnavigation, um, which, which honestly <clears throat> I find a little bit astonishing because, uh, the Vonley Globe is the pinnacle of, uh, of our sport and you know there are lots of different ways you can get into it uh i did two races around the world before i i did mine and i sort of felt like i i knew what was up when i got into the south um but i i have a number of friends that i'm talking to um uh, e- even now by by email and, and whatsapp as they're out there um and this is the the first time that they're they're tackling it so i i think that they're not really engaged in what's what's coming up um, in the long t- long term because the the South Atlantic is proving, as it often does, uh, to be incredibly challenging and just getting down towards the ice barrier, um, and and getting into the some decent wind to head towards Cape Town uh, is going to be a real challenge or has been a challenge for the past week. So. You know, in, in many ways, the enormity of the Bonnet Globe or any major ocean passage um, is a little bit mind-boggling and it's sort of dangerous to let yourself uh, get too wrapped up in the, the enormity of it. So 
and every little wind shift that comes along and every little sail change that you have to get engaged in just means that you focus on the present moment um, and and probably don't too don't get too caught up in it actually mm. well you had quite a lot of present moments i'd imagine on the last Vendée globe um it was a fairly dramatic experience that's for sure um, and, and I'd kind of really like to explore some of that today as well as sort of some of the things that, um, you know, draws people in and, and what your future might hold in here. But just as a sort of an opening, you know, looking back at that last one, how do you look on your time on the last Fonday Globe? Well, just to put it in a little bit of, of perspective, typically, well, the, the Fonday Globe happens every every four years, typically in the same year as, as the Olympics. Um, and uh, ideally, you have a four-year uh, sort of runway into that in terms of either acquiring an existing boat or building a new boat um, and then splashing it in the water 18 months before the start of the race, um, working, working the kinks out of it, getting it reliable and fast, uh, and then rocking up on the start line and, you know, all guns blazing. Um, in comparison to that, I... So four years before my first race in 2016, I actually won my first race around the world um, called the Global Ocean Race. They had a stopover in Wellington. And um, that was a pretty good warm-up to that race. And I tried to convert that into an Open 60 uh, campaign and didn't end up uh, managing to do that. I instead did the Barcelona World Race uh, as a co-skipper in somebody else's campaign. Um, in the European winter of 2014-2015 and then stepping off into uh, stepping off that boat and then trying to convert that into a solo campaign um, I spent all of 2015 um, running around fundraising and getting some money together that meant that at the end of 2015 we bought a boat and started a refit <clears throat> but that was then less than 12 months before the start of the race and with a tiny, tiny budget. Um, so in in the 2016 uh, preseason, I went back and forth solo across the Atlantic. Uh, so two transatlantics as a warm-up. Um, and then sort of took my very, very old uh, boat with recycled um, secondhand sails uh, to the start line and, and sort of crossed my fingers and went off into the race hoping hoping for the best but as you know because you know my story very well it was characterized by pretty significant misadventures lots and lots of um of me getting the toolkit out and trying to uh, keep the boat uh functional and pointing in the right direction and you know despite all these challenges and the and the typical kiwi number eight um way of getting by on, on a shoestring. Uh, I worked my way up into a, into the top 10 uh, and stayed there for most of the race. Um, and so it was, uh, you know, in summary, as you, as you said, how do I look back on it? Um, it was uh, something that I feel immensely proud of um, because I, in many ways, I did outperform uh, the boat that I had and the preparation that I had. Um, but I also got an absolute kicking along the way and physically, emotionally, mentally, um, I was just in the toilet for probably a year afterwards, uh, just completely, uh, completely destroyed. <laughs> so, you know, I, 
and and that has been motivating me for for the years uh, subsequently because I've been trying to build the kind of campaign that I can be really proud of where I can come and and demonstrate my true potential when I'm not sort of firefighting all the way around the world. Well, you became something of a really sailing celebrity afterwards because of what happened. You know, you were doing interviews all over the world and TV um, shows were coming to, to interview you as well. You know, how did you cope with, with all of that? Because you're going from being on a boat by yourself for 100 days or whatever it was, and then you're suddenly thrust in, in front of thousands, millions of people. Um, let's, let's not get too carried away. I'm, you know, as a sailor, not a football star, but um, but no, you're right. It, it was certainly a uh, a very new experience for me. Um, you know, I'm much more likely to be spending time scraping paint off the bottom of a boat in a in a, in a boatyard uh, and relatively anonymously um, than doing uh, high level interviews. But for me, it was a it was an incredible privilege and because it was an opportunity to tell my story, uh, but also an opportunity to wear the hat of an ambassador for a sport that I love um, and that I feel is uh, woefully, um, if not misunderstood, not sufficiently understood or appreciated. Uh, and so it was definitely an opportunity for me to um, to try and spread the gospel a little bit and uh, to, to talk about why I think that, and that ocean sailing uh, can really carry the values of, uh, of of the world that we have now and the world that we need to be in the future in terms of re- renewable energy and and um, being efficient with our materials and being respectful of uh, of nature and you know not just put putting a whacking great V eight on it and, and lighten the wick. Um, so um, so yeah, that's very, that's very definitely how I saw it. Is it was the project and the experience was just much bigger than me. Let's get into some of the, the, the detail, the, the nitty gritty of, of what happened last time. And I'm I'm kind of assuming here, but the most dramatic was probably when you were washed overboard overboard at night in the Southern Ocean. Um, do you agree? And I guess um, what happened? Yeah, so certainly um, I've got a long list to, to choose from because I had many misadventures during the course of that race. Uh, but certainly the one that put me in the most uh, direct peril uh, was absolutely going over, over the side. Um, I to, to make a long story short, I, I had to drop the mainsail in a, in a hurry. And that meant that I had to climb the mast. And so I climbed the mast, disconnect the... The sail, drop it down, and then um, because I did that in a hurry, it made a bit of a mess. And uh, on offshore boats, uh, instead of flaking the, the mainsail over the boom, uh, we've got the lazy jacks and then a big lazy bag that that is meant to uh, collect all of the folds of the mainsail together. And I climbed out um, into that lazy bag and was sort of in the process of, um, of collecting the folds of the mainsail. And when the ropes, the lines holding it it up uh, failed and that dropped the boom down onto the side of the boat and bounced it off into the, um, into the sea. And I went from straddling the boom, kind of like riding a horse, uh, to being ejected off, uh, off the side and then pitched into the water. Um, 
Now, because I'm a relatively safety uh, conscious sailor, I had I had clipped on, on onto the boom, and so even though I was dragging through the water, I was um, held by my safety harness, um, and I then had to figure out how to get back on on board the boat, um, because I the boat was was moving relatively quickly through the water, and I didn't have the the strength to overcome the force of the water. Uh, to climb back up my safety harness onto the boom, which was well above my head. This was, by the way, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with water temperatures of between sort of three and five degrees Celsius. So I was losing strength pretty quickly as well. Um, and so, sort of, luckily the waves are pretty big, and and as the boat um, moved through them, I got washed up against the side of the boat, um, and managed to get an elbow around the stanchion. Um, but then my my safety tether was was then too short to allow me to climb back on board the boat, and um, so I sort of had this difficult moment where I had a chat with myself and and you know wondered what the the best approach was, and ultimately, um, I realised that the only way to uh, to get back to safety was to put myself in further peril which was to uh, take off my safety harness, which had just saved my life, um, with while I was still outside the boat with my feet dangling in the water. Um, and that allowed me to, to climb up the, up the outside of the boat and, and get to safety inside. Pretty, pretty awful story, just thinking about it now. <laughs> so what sort of emotions were running through your head when you got yourself back on board? You know, just this huge um, wave of emotion and, and realization of just how close I had come to not coming back. Um, that's my, you, you know, Michael, but my, but most listeners don't. And um, that my my father was killed in an accident on on board a, a pleasure yacht, um, and so you know, and and his memory is is one that I carry with me. Uh, in a very profound way because I'm, I'm doing what, what his passion was and I'm doing ultimately as a day job um, what it was that killed him. So, um, you know, every time that, that I have the, uh, the opportunity to, to sort of think about him and, uh, and think about safety when I'm on board, it certainly helps me come down on the side of, you know, don't be stupid, clip on and, and, uh, and keep yourself safe because I'm, I've been confronted very, uh, very directly with the consequences of that. Um, so yeah, realizing how, how close I'd come to sharing the same fate. Um, and, um, yeah, tough one. Uh, just a very, very thankfully rare moment that I don't think many people share. Um, and that is just, a having truly come uh being confronted face to face with your own mortality uh, and and thankfully we don't do that very often well we didn't hear about it until you'd actually finished the race and um, i think from memory you told one person it wasn't your wife um but how hard was it i guess to to keep it quiet when the urge might have been to tell people um <laughs> as impressive as and as remarkable as that uh, experience was, it was um, pretty quickly buried by other troubles and stories and misadventures and challenges um, 
and um, I, in the moment, I had to, I had to call my shore crew and have a bit of a chat and and have that emotional release. Um, but then I just sort of cracked on and and kept on sailing the boat and and um, you know made myself a cup of coffee and changed my clothes and got got back into it. So, um, so it was that experience was sort of put put behind me and 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 it wasn't until the um, the post race press conference where I was sort of safe and sound and uh, sort of going back through the anecdotes and. Uh, of the race and that I was like, Oh yeah. And by the way, I almost died. <laughs> um, and, and my wife was, um, was watching the, the online stream. She was in, uh, in the press center helping to prepare the, the, the press release about the race. And she was like, Oi, <laughs> what's this? <laughs> she sort of pulled me over afterwards and was like, yeah, don't, don't do that again. And don't not tell me. Um, so yeah, you know, probably should have, Manage that one a bit better, given her a heads up that things got pretty spicy out there. And she's going to let you go back again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she she knows that this is what makes me tick. That um, what attracted me to the Monday Globe in the first place, um, and I was already on that path when uh, when we met. Thankfully, um, was was that I, I find it to be the most complete challenge that i can uh that i can set myself you know when when it has to be in excellent physical physical condition so you know a a high performance ultra endurance athlete um you have to be a very good technician uh you need to be able to install and operate and, and maintain all of the very complicated systems on board and and then you have to have complete mastery over the actual uh, elements of, of racing uh, an incredibly high powered and incredibly uncomfortable uh, boat through the through the ocean uh, through the ocean waves and and, and all that that entails in terms of uh, driving trimming and driving trimming doing the maneuvers and uh, most interestingly for me at least uh, is the the strategy of of um, determining your route and and uh, engaging with the with the weather and the navigation. Um, so I, I think it's it's rare to find um, one one role that is uh, so extremely uh, multidisciplinary, and uh, and so it's it's extremely exciting. It's what lights my fire every day. And so uh, even when I'm not out out at sea like I am today, I'm thinking about it. And I'm imagining that I'm that I'm there. Uh, and so certainly until I've scratched that itch and, and had that campaign that allows me to, to see what I'm truly made of, uh, I've got to keep going out there and she supports me in that, thankfully. Well, you mentioned that you had a catalogue of misadventure and I, I'd probably just run through a very brief catalogue. You also had a fire on board, your auto, autopilot went crazy and you um, wiped out a, a multiple times you I think nearly ran out of sails and your mast nearly came down again in the southern ocean when a four stay pin came out in about 60 knots of breeze breeze uh, storm shall I say breeze quote unquote <laughs> yeah yeah um but then a lot of people will remember you from when you were dismasted um less than a thousand miles from home you know, when that came down, did you kind of just feel cursed? Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I definitely did. And it, it happened at night, as most misadventures do at sea. And um, 
in in the middle of this sort of crazy secondary low that was bouncing around um, the the Spanish Peninsula in a way that was very uh, very bizarre and wasn't particularly well modelled by the um, by the weather forecasts. And as a result, I um, uh, I ended up sailing through the literally through the eye of the storm um, in the sense that we had uh, we me and the boat um, had wind from from one direction and then we went through the eye the sky was clear um, the the winds dropped completely and then it just came back with a vengeance from from exactly 180 degrees uh, the other way and um, I was sailing, I thought, very conservatively uh, with two reefs in the main and a small, uh, small jib and um, was really conscious of the fact that the boat was tired, that I was tired at the end of this long race and was really taking it easy. And yet um, the, the D1 uh, on the starboard side um, rigging cable snapped in the middle in a way that, um, that is very atypical in terms of its mode of failure. So I guess I've, I've got that going for me. I had a special kind of break, Michael. Um, and, and yeah, the mast folded up and, and fell over the side and, and I had to uh, run around and, and uh, cut all the cables and rigging and so on to, uh, to get rid of the mast, which was banging against the side of the boat. And, and you know, just, just as a, a little bit of a tangent there, you know, I had often heard stories about about having to um, sort of dismember the mast and get rid of it as soon as possible because it could make a hole in the boat, um, and that was certainly on the forefront of my of my mind at, in that moment. Um, and when we pulled the boat out of the water um, after we after we made it home, uh, I saw that there had been a, a huge gouge through through the bottom um, the bottom carbon layers of, of the boat and so the boat is made of, of uh, sandwich foam you know with one layer of carbon and then some foam and then, and then another layer of carbon um, three centimeters thick overall um, and this gouge had gone through the outer layer of carbon through the foam and had scored the outside of the inner layer of carbon so it was about one millimeter away from having a massive hole in the boat um, so so anyway um, was was running around um, chopping it all away and and then once that um, once the final bit of rope went ping and and the boat settled down and the mast disappeared and the rigging disappeared and um, I sort of sat there going you know this is my whole race you know down down the tubes um, and I called the race direction and said look I've been dismasted but I'm you know I'm not uh, I'm not abandoning officially and I called my wife and said look you know, I'm pretty crushed here I'm not having a good day um, and she said, oh, don't worry, honey, you know, you'll find a solution. <laughs> it's like, come on, you know, this is, this is lights out game over. There's not, not much more you can do here. Um, and, and after a hundred days of, um, of constant stress with all of the other, uh, challenges that you, uh, that you recited there, I thought that I had come to the end of my, my rope. Um, and, and yet when the sun came up and I, you know, called the, called land again and had a bit of a chat with, uh, with my wife and with my shore team and I sort of, um, I, I developed again, the resolve to, to at least have a crack at it, um, and not, 
not pull the pin and not not stick my thumb out and hope for somebody to come along and and, and pick me up in the middle of the ocean. Um, and so I uh, so I built a jury rig, and it took me four days of uh, cutting and splicing and gluing and floating aimlessly uh, in the in the middle of the Atlantic um, to to glue the broken bits of boom back together to make a mast uh, to cut a new mainsail, and then uh, finally overcome the la- the last challenge, which was actually to step the step the mast and get it vertical and start sailing again. But um, that 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 for me was was the moments that I was the most um, most proud of my of my capabilities, uh, both emotionally and physically and technically, because I was able to um, o- overcome overcome the dismasting and say there was going to be a, a point that I could prove that I could uh, that I could get out of this this mess and uh, and sell myself home. But if that wasn't enough, you almost ran out of food. <laughs> I know. The day that I got the got the the jury rig up was the day that I had my uh, my last meal of, of freeze dried um, because I had been sufficiently delayed um, by my by my other misadventures that I you know I, I thought initially that I was going to do the race in ninety days and so I gave myself a you know ten percent uh, margin on that and brought a hundred days of food. But then on my sort of 95th day, I think it was, I dropped the rig and then had to uh, do all of this um, floating boatyard adventure that I just told you about. So uh, so I was then at 100 days and I ran out of food. Um, but, you know, I'm really legitimately uh, passionate about the story of um, of man's relationship with, with the sea and sort of it, adventures and misadventures of people being either sort of cast away as a result of shipwrecks or um or the the stories that that inspired herman melville to write uh, to write moby dick you know that that i was far uh, far from being the first person to go a little bit hungry at sea and um and i sort of took comfort from from these uh, historical uh examples of um of people managing and coming up with creative solutions and uh, to get themselves out of a jam and so i i broke into my uh security rations and and um got out the the emergency food for the life raft um and sort of did a little bit of weather routing and figured out approximately how long it should take me and then um and then chopped up the the little bits of greasy biscuit um, that are hugely calorie dense but not very tasty, um, and made daily rations. And I, I ended up with about sort of three hundred calories of, uh, of of food uh, for for ten days, and um, um, was on basically starvation rations, um, and ended up losing about ten kilos during during the course of the whole adventure. But um, had enough food to keep me relatively lucid, and I had. Uh, had plenty of powdered coffee, so I, I, whenever I got hungry, I made myself a coffee and probably ended up as a sort of strung out caffeine junkie by the end of it. But um, made it made it to the end. So what you're saying is just a really a stubborn bugger, aren't you? <laughs> I am, I am, and that's that's what frustrates me about the, about the um, about the failure of 
uh, getting to the start line this time. Is, and I, I do see it as a failure because it was years of work without the result that I wanted. Um, and and sadly, just being stubborn and uh, and you know, <laughs> bloody-minded about it and uh, you know, knocking on every door that I could possibly think of um, didn't get me there. And that's what I find frustrating. Is that it, it was, again, bigger than me and I've got a... I am now re-examining my my way of of, um, of seeking potential sponsors and trying to be more efficient um, because clearly whatever I was doing last time didn't work. You're also known though as the crazy Kiwi. So do you think you're crazy? Um, no. And crazy Kiwi was was a nickname that I was that I uh, sort of copped here in France because um, I I accelerated my learning and and that's my career and um, by just never saying no to anything and so you know i would get on any uh any little boat any little hunk of junk any possible opportunity that i could to get sea miles and um, and uh you know sailing boats that were woefully inappropriate for the for for what we were doing and um, and and for me who had sort of grown up listening to these incredible stories, uh, most notably of um, of Peter Blake and the and and Bruce Farr and people sort of tinkering away in their in their back uh, back garden sheds to build boats and see if it worked and if it falls apart, the way you go back and do it again. Um, I just thought that that's how how it worked. You know, you didn't need to have a big flashy boat to to go go really fast and have a good time and, and learn lots. Um, and I had always sort of thought that the French were completely crazy um, because of these big fancy trimarans and, and crazy speeds and, and the idea of sailing solo around the world. That was pretty crazy for me. But um, but I, I rocked up and and when I realized that I was starting to scare the Frenchmen, um, I, I realized that I must be doing something something right <laughs> because they turned around and, and baptized me the, the crazy Kiwi. Um, but no, I, I don't think I'm... Uh, don't think I'm crazy. I just think I'm, you know, sufficiently passionate not to say no to things, even when I probably should. <laughs> so, what was it like then to get to that finish line finally after all of those challenges? Uh, it, it was amazing, um, uh, and I, I know that it's uh, you know silly just just to say that because it obviously can't do it justice. But it was the it was a culmination of more than a decade of, of um, single-minded work to get to that point um, that I had sailed um, probably 120,000 ocean miles to, to get to that point. Um, I had woken up for years and years and years every morning going, you know, what can I do today that's going to get me to this point? Um, and to finally have that payoff um, was just absolutely remarkable uh, and incredibly rich and satisfying as a, as a moment that I cherish in my life. Um, but one of the things um, that, that I was most touched by was the number of people that came out to welcome me. Um, you know, it was a it was a beautiful sunny afternoon in in Les Abdelon, which is the the town of the Vendée Globe, um, and low thousands of people, ten thousand people were there just to welcome you know little old me, um, 
And it was this incredibly humbling experience hearing that people had driven from hours and hours and hours away because they, to be there, um, because they were touched by my story and the story of, of resilience and, and that I had brought to bear during the course of the race. And they felt touched by that and they wanted to both come and congratulate me and also, um, I, I, I guess, share in that, in that experience with me. Um, and so what had initially been a, a personal pursuit of mine, um, of me going, oh, you know, wouldn't it be cool to go sail around the world and see if, I, if, if I've got the guts to do it, uh, became something that was so much bigger than just me, uh, that I had touched lots of people with, with, with my story uh, and, and also with the, with the example of, of going around the world without any fossil fuels and, and promoting renewable energy that I um, was delighted to have seen that that was just so much more than one guy on a boat. Hmm. I was just going to ask you about that because you did become, um, what was it, the first Vendée Globe uh, competitor to, to complete the race without using fossil fuels. Where did that idea come from? And I guess just talk to me a little bit about the the juxtaposition of you having done this and then, you know, a, a large flotilla of boats meeting you out there with their uh, gas-guzzling motors. Yeah, yeah, certainly. There, are, there are some pretty cool photos of uh, of that flotilla, and and then you sit there at the end and you're like, wait a second, <laughs> you know, we're within sight of land, and we've got all of these engines raging. Um, there's there's got to be something something that we can do about this. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't expect to be. Um, to be held up as an example of, uh, of, you know, in, environmental consciousness in, 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 in any respect, because yes, I was the first person to race around the world without burning any fossil fuels. Um, and I demonstrated that, uh, that solar panels and hydro generators, uh, and renewable energy sources in the, in the leisure sailing market are sufficiently reliable, uh, and well-developed that, um, you know, if I can do it, then you've got no excuse either. Um, but to, to be clear, it was a very symbolic act. You know, it, it, most of the boats out there have um, have 200 liters of, of diesel in their bilges running standard engines. Um, and so the fleet itself represents a tiny fraction of even even the daily consumption of one individual country or, or town even. So, um, but but for me, it was an example of showing um showing that now is the time and i and i think you know even since 2016 has become uh, increasingly obvious that um that the, the situation the climate is such that um that we do need to make pretty dramatic steps in the way that we move move ourselves around and grow our food and and, and live our lives um, and i think that uh, i was proud of having a, a you know a little part to to play in maybe moving that story forwards um in all of my future projects, I will continue to uh, to be an, an innovative in uh, in renewable technology, and also looking at how the marine industry more more widely can have a smaller impact in terms of using recyclable sail membranes from one sails, for example, um, or Marlow ropes, and uh, now um, now making their Dyneema from uh, from vegetable uh, resin sources. Um, and, and seeing how far we can go with that. But, but 
you know, my the origins and my inspiration for that was sort of growing up in New Zealand and walking down the beach and picking up plastic and um, sort of having it drilled into me from an early day, uh, from an early age, that um, uh, that we need to take care of the ocean and and um, if we if we have it as our playgrounds, then we need to respect it and and, and treat it well. So. Uh, for, for me, it was just the most natural thing in the world to, to go and uh, try and make a try and demonstrate what's possible and to the to the wider world. Mm. Well, certainly a very good message. Um, so we've talked about what it was like for you to return. I, I just briefly would wouldn't mind just I guess turning your attention to um, what it was like to leave port because. You know, it is a, a big deal in France, and there are thousands there. But then, equally, you're going out to this massive challenge by yourself. What's sort of going through your head on that day when you when you leave port? Uh, shock, <laughs> shock, surprise, um, because you know, the, there are three hundred thousand people, um, or six Eden parks. Of people that are lining, uh, lining the shores and lighting the the, the the channel as we go out. So we just got this this insane and and completely unique roar of humanity of people sort of wishing you well and sending you off. Um, and then you go um, you go from that to um, to the pre-start procedure where you've just got uh, your your thirty buddies out there and one on each of uh, your boats and and then the then the gun goes and then and you've got the flotilla that stays with you for an hour or so and then as the boat the last boat turns around and um, and, and sort of waves goodbye then you realize that you know that's it you're you're on your own for the next three months um, and you bit better a crack on with it so you can turn around and come home um, but also um, it's it's not at all a sinking feeling, you know. It's not the sort of realization of you know uh, what have I got myself in, in for. It's you know it's exciting, it's liberating um, to to finally be engaging with the event that, with the events that you've been sort of dreaming about for a long time. So you know it's solitude is something that I that I manage very well. Um, I've always been pretty self motivated, um, so that's never been a problem. But I think. Um, that that day is very special because you know there there have been people significantly uh, significantly hurt or they you know, there has been one fa- one fatality in the uh, in the race during the course of its history and people have been lost and lost and found and you know you do certainly have this this sense of uh, of gravitas of you know this is this is not your standard regatta this is not your standard sporting event you know you're not going to go kick a ball around a around a bit of grass you know you're going to go sail around the world and um and and do it by yourself and so it's just a very special and very emotionally charged um day of finally getting to do what the thing is that you want to do um but then also looking in people's eyes as they look at you and sort of realizing that wow you know we're really really going into the thick of it now well i'm guessing it was quite a different um departure this time around with with france being in in lockdown but what else i guess is different about this edition of the race because 
um, doing a bit of reading in the world, eight new foiling boats in the fleet this time. Yeah, um, it sort of continues the uh, the themes that have been sort of growing organically for for several editions. Um, one is that the boats are going. Um, are faster. So on the 14 side, there are eight new foilers, and plus the the eight boats that were built for the last edition, uh, the hair foils, plus several others that have been retrofitted. So you've got a little bit more than two thirds of the of the 30 boat fleet, 33 boat fleet, um, that are foiling or foil assisted. Or, but then within that, you've got these these sort of very distinct generations, and that all of the new boats that have been built now are. Uh, just massively faster. It is obscene how fast they go, um, and uh, I know that you know Aucklanders who have been t- taking the ferries and and um, been otherwise exposed to to the AC seventy five that are sort of used to boats that are going warp speed and and little puffs of wind, but. Um, but what they're doing here is they're you know they're by themselves by themselves and they're doing that for twenty four hours a day, and so you know you've got boats that that'll easily do double wind speed um, in in light conditions and um, and otherwise do you know thirty knots and twenty knots of wind and so it's they're just insane, um, and so you've got this sort of trial of is it going to be the, the the carbon the the hard carbon that goes bang first or the soft squishy bit in the middle that that uh, the skipper that gives up first because they just can't deal with the the whistling of the of the foils or the banging of the boat or the you know I, I know that in, in New Zealand's our you know top top sports are sailing and, and rugby and the sailors now are combining those two by wearing rugby helmets inside the boat um, because you're you're more likely to get hurt inside the boat uh, because of the bouncing and slamming and accelerations and decelerations um, than than outside. Um, so so the boats are faster and more brutal, and that's for sure. And other things that are changing are that the boats are becoming increasingly more connected. And you know, I I sort of grew up in uh, in New Zealand in the eighties and nineties, and I remember. The, the the sort of long range radio crackly voices coming back from the from Cape Horn during during the Whitbread races and and having that played out on on the nightly news and and undoubtedly that's that's what sort of uh, planted the seed of my my passion for coming and doing this myself um, but now uh, you know we've had satellite communications obviously for for years now and. Um, but the new uh, Iridium network of uh, of satellites has just dropped the price um, so far that even small campaigns have uh, have a live satellite connection on pretty much all the time. Um, and so there are boats that, that have WhatsApp running on board um, all day, every day, and they're sort of sitting there at their, at their chart table. And while it's sort of on 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 the honor code that the the people on the other end of that line are not giving them assistance as to which which way they should be going, and you know you do have the sailors doing sort of daily daily technical briefs with their uh, with their shore teams and going through checklists together. And and for me, that's that's almost a step too far because it, the the three major principles of this race are 
uh, nonstop around the world and uh, without assistance. And it's that that last element that I feel has been um, been degraded by uh, the addition of all of this technology. You know that it's important. To, you know, yes. You are out there by yourself. Nobody's going to be doing the sale changes for you. And if you get get stuck, you know you don't have somebody to hold the other end of a spanner for you. Um, but uh, but this connection, I think, is is pretty remarkable. Do you think that's something that they need to look at and potentially curb the amount of contact? Uh, I, I feel like the horse is, is sort of bolted on that one. Um, just the way that the modern world works. Um, it's also driven by the fact that um, the the sailors receive financial penalties if they do not send regular uh, text and video updates, um, and so um, you know the interaction with the media and the and the production of, of uh, stories and and so on from from sea is is so important and drives the whole economic model of the uh, of the whole dog and pony show that um, that no I don't think it'll be curtailed. So how how long do you think it will take the first boats to finish the race this time around? And I guess equally, how long will it take for sort of the the tail enders to get home? Um, well, I think that we're seeing an an incredible spread. Uh, let me just measure. I have got the tracker up in front of me now, and I'll just measure from Charlie Dallin, who's at the front of the race right now, and I'll. I'll discount where um, where Charles or Jeremy Bayou is because he had to turn around. But to go back to the last boat that hasn't turned around is two and a half thousand miles, um, and obviously that's that's the difference between a, a fully pro team and a bleeding edge new new boat. And and um, and actually the boat that I sailed last time around the world now being sailed by. Um, um, by Sebastian Descamo, who's a half French, half uh, half Aussie guy, uh, who picked up my old boat, and um, the fact that he's in last place, and I was sort of in the mid- middle of the fleet um, four years ago, sort of makes me feel pretty good because clearly I was doing something right. Um, but um, um, but two and a half thousand miles spread from first to last uh, speaks to a number of things. One is you've got um, very, very old, a uh, very long life in the American sixties, um, <clears throat> and so you've got several generations. Sort of, uh, you know, it's not just son, father, grandfather, but almost you know, uh, one generation beyond that. So you've got boats that are that were built and splashed in nineteen ninety eight, um, and then boats that were splashed in in twenty twenty. Um, so I think part of that is 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 great because it means that these boats have a long life. Uh, it means that their depreciation can can be and value can be spread out over a long time. Um, it means that we're not taking um, otherwise functional boats and and pushing them out of the class or putting them in a bin because they're not the latest and greatest. Um, but it does mean that you end up with these sort of this crazy spread in the fleet. Um, uh, the Alex Thompson made some waves at his pre-race uh, press conference saying that if everything goes right, his boat will end that generation, could get around the world in 49 days, um, which is pretty optimistic considering that uh, um, that the the old team, the 100-foot the trimaran, uh, no holds barred, 
class and has gone around the world in 40 days. Um, so for me, that was pretty optimistic. The record is currently 74 days. Um, and I think that despite the fact that we've had a pretty slow run through the Atlantic and the, you know, the trade winds have been pretty disturbed and the South Atlantic has been pretty slow, and then I think that we'll, we'll safely go underneath the bar of, of 70 days uh, this time with the, with the leaders. Um, and it'll probably be 110 days, 115 days or so for the, for the tail enders to, to make it through. Um, so there's lots more racing to come. Um, but just if, if I may, to, to put perspective on that 70-day um, number is that I remember watching, um, watching ends in New Zealand with um, Rob Knox Johnson and, and Peter Blake and um, – uh, go go around the world uh, for the first well for the second time, but breaking the record for the Jules Verne Trophy and going around the world in eighty days, and so that was a you know top spec massive trimaran, fully crewed, um, and um, and in one generation we're going faster than that now uh, with uh, a, a sixty foot monohull with one guy on board. So I, it's it, for me it's it's really exciting to to see this development. Quite extraordinary, really. Um, what what's the hardest part of the race? Is it physical? Is it mental? Um, it's tough to separate those two um, because um, you know we, we've we've counted the calories that we that we go through uh, just to stay warm, let alone for the physical capacity uh, to to sail the boat and raise the sails and hoist them and trim them and so on. Um, and we're we're doing pretty close to an Ironman triathlon um, every day um, on, on, our, on our busy days, at least. Um, and so you're sort of going through tens, you know, ten thousand calories plus per per day um, of physical output, um, and you're sleeping maybe maybe four, but hopefully closer to five five or six hours of um, of sleep, um, but obviously accumulating an incredible fatigue, um, and then doing that in, in an environment that could be forty degrees in the tropics, or you know three degrees, five degrees down down in the south. Um, so physically, it's it's hard to find something that's harder. Certainly, an event that goes for goes for so long. Um, and then mentally, you're out there by yourself. Uh, you have to manage the the highs and lows. Uh, you have to obviously be a good self-starter and self-motivator to to keep fighting, even when you're um, tired, scared, isolated, uh, and and cold. So, you know, to answer your question, it's 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 very it's very hard to separate the two, and um, because you're completely wrung out on both. To be to be honest. Um, and you have to be incredibly prepared um, mentally as well as physically because there have been a number of sort of hotshot champion rookies that have said, you know, I've won other classes or I've performed in, in, in other events. I'm going to um, come in and, and do really well here and, um, uh, and have sort of looked for excuses to bail out and, and go home. Um, and um, I, I think that you've got to have a pretty special, quote unquote, <laughs> uh, kind of character to to make it through this race. It's it's not 
for many reasons, it's not your average regatta. <laughs> That's an understatement. It's not as if you can kind of just say, oh, look, I'm a little bit tired and cold. I'm just going to go home and warm up. Uh, maybe we'll give it another crack tomorrow. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and then, then the shit hits the fan as it did with you so often as well. Yeah, that, that's the that's the thing uh, on the mental side that is that is so challenging is that as um, as high high performance athletes um, who have been sort of training on this for for a long time and working your way through the classes to get into it is that the idea of working hard and getting cold and wet and uncomfortable and then working hard and grunting up and um, that, that's fine, you know that's that's table stakes. Everybody everybody does that. Otherwise, you wouldn't you wouldn't be there. The thing that is really hard to manage is, as we said, you're already tired, wet, and cold, and working hard, and and underslept, and then the shit hits the fan when you've got a technical problem, or um, um, or you need to dig extra deep in a way that's not sort of your typical sporting adventure. Then you've you need to manage, you know, the expectations. Uh, are changing your boat is broken uh, you need to need to fix it you need to do that in the most intelligent way even as you have your competitors sail away from you um, you know one, one of the guys and uh, that is obviously very well known for those that have followed the Bondi globe in the past few few years and Alex Thompson with his incredible Hugo boss uh, campaign the uh, the campaign that has a um, has by far and away the the record of of, sort of longevity in the sport uh, because he's been sailing Hugo Boss boats since since two thousand and four in the one day globe. And this, this is his fifth edition, so it's it, pretty remarkable. So obviously on the on the commercial side he's done very well. On the sporting side, um, he has finished the race. He's had two um, two abandons. He's had two podiums, uh, third, second, and now he's aiming for first. Um, and so with all of the pressure on his shoulders of having this multi-million uh, pound campaign, uh, having had two podiums and going, you know, it, it's got to be victory or bust for him. And then three, four days ago, he had a, a big um, longitudinal piece of structure in, in his boat uh, break. And he had to bail out of the leading trio. You know, He was in the lead of the race at that, ta- at that time. Um, he had his two closest competitors put 500 miles into him as he uh, sat with his sails down, um, gluing his boat back together. But um, at least from what he uh, from what he showed us, um, he he did so with an incredible res- steely resolve. Uh, he was still smiling. He was still saying, you know, if I was going to have a, um, a structural failure, this is the place to do it because I was in the South Atlantic in calms. Um, with plenty of runway still to go to, to try and claw back those miles. So you know, clearly this is something that he has developed um, over the course of, of his career and, and thanks to thanks to lots of experience and lots of experience with, with setbacks because he's had plenty. Um, but that's the kind of thing that, um, that differentiates a, a, a true champion is the ability to um, be intelligent in the way that you use your resources. And one of those resources is your is your sort of mental and emotional capacities to, to keep on fighting. I get a sense that the, maybe the theme song for the Vendée Globe is that Monty Python. Um, Just a flesh wound? 
Well, that, no. but also always look on the bright side of life. You know, you, yeah. No matter what you've sort of thrown your way, you've just got to find a way to get through it because um, you could be miles away from safety anyway, and it's up to you to sort it out and, and get home safely. Um, that's that's a very good reference, but uh, I, I quite like my my, my, my fish wound skit. <laughs> Yeah, I agree with you. Monty Python has the has the answer for the many things in life. So, you've talked about you know that your campaign has already started for the next time around, and you're you're scouring to to, to get some money together and a and a boat together for next time. What about the actual logistics of having to line up? You know, what about qualifying? Because not just anyone can rock up on you know the start line and and race around the world. What do you need to do to be there? Yeah, well, as I said, there are a number of rookies in the in the race and first time circumnavigators. So you know, the the door is certainly open to to people coming in, uh, but you need to demonstrate that you've got the chops to the chops to do it. So it's not something that you can um, um, that you can do on a whim. It is a multi year project. Um, you, as a minimum, you you need to do a solo um, solo transatlantic race um, to to qualify, and then plus a qualifying voyage um, on top of that. Uh, but then, because the race is almost a, a victim of its own success, you know, the race was oversubscribed, and it was meant to be just thirty boats, and, and for a long time. Um, we had a ranking system running in the class um, whereby you had to uh, line up and participate in as many of the pre-season, well, pre-season, multi-year pre-season um, beforehand. And then it was those that had been the most uh, most reliable contributors to the life of the class um, and who had done all, the, all of the other races were going to be the ones that were going to be selected. Um, another way to get into the race and to guarantee your spot um, was to was to build a new boat. Um, and so, for example, the reason that uh, Kojiro Shirashai, the the Japanese sailor, uh, has a new boat this year is is because of that rule. Um, is that he uh, he wasn't able to contribute uh, to to the class by by sailing the other races. Uh, he found uh, a very big money sponsor relatively late in the game, um, and was looking at buying one of the existing boats. But knew that um, that because he was low on miles, he he wasn't guaranteed a slot uh, because he abandoned the last race and um, and didn't have uh, sort of preferential treatment. And so he built a new boat and that, that was his golden ticket. Um, when the race was oversubscribed, I had a golden ticket because I had finished the last race and the, the, uh, the protected categories were those that had built new boats or those that finished the last race. So, um, but basically the way that you get into it is that you need to come here, um, uh, come here, get into a boat, uh, log miles and races by either doing, uh, the Transatlantic which happens in the two off years, uh, the year immediately following the one-day globe and immediately preceding it, and then every four years, um, but offset by by two years, so it falls in the middle of the four-year period, is the other highlight of the of the 
uh, of the racing calendar, which is the Route to Rum, a very prestigious transatlantic sprint, really, just 3,000 miles um, from Saint-Malo in France to um, Pointe-à-Pitre in, in, um, in Guadeloupe. Um, so the thing that, that's, that's rewarded is, uh, is, being, uh, is being active and present. And that's how you get into it. And will you have a new build next time around, or will you be chartering again? What what's sort of the plan? Um, mate, I, I would love to have um, a new boat. I think that it would be a uh, an incredibly stimulating and exciting process to go through to uh, you know to conceive and and bring into the world a, a, a new boat that is a representation of you know of your your style your size you know these boats are, are sort of custom made for the size of the skipper um but um it, it's it's definitely premature to um to say what kind of boat i'll be on uh, because it is totally dependent upon the the sponsorship that I find and the the, the values that, that that company or or group of companies has um, and their degree of investment and and their desires out of the race. You know, lots of people want to uh, are excited by the um, by the charge to be at the front and and the, and telling the technology story uh, that uh, that goes along with that pursuit. And um, and others are just happy to be there in the spectacle of uh, of participating. So, um, you know, I, my my goal as a sportsman is is to be at the pointy end of the race, and uh, and how I get there is not yet written. I guess uh, for anyone out there listening, ConradColeman.com, isn't it? If they want to donate millions and squillions of dollars to the campaign, <laughs> that's right, that's right. I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm still there. Uh, so ConradColeman.com, and you know. I, I'm a little bit disappointed because I would love to um, I would love to involve the New Zealand well, New Zealand in general the New Zealand audience uh, and the New Zealand sailing industry in, in the in my pursuit of the one day globe um, and I'm I'm sort of bummed a, a bit by the reality that you know it's it's a very it's a very French race by by definition it doesn't come to New Zealand because it's non-stop around the world and um, and so it's something that I've been wrestling with for a long time. It's how can I best bring uh, bring this this excitement and bring this campaign to to New Zealand. And so that is very much a work in progress. Um, so I'd love to talk to anybody who who has any ideas uh, along those lines. I've certainly got the experience and um, with three races around the world to my to my credit to to be a a viable candidate to to do that. Um, but um, you know, come along for the ride. I've uh, I've been the the first Kiwi in to participate in, uh, of course, the Vendée Globe, but also all of the other French um, pillars of the sport that I've that I've participated in. Um, I was the first one to do the Route de Rome. I was the first person to do the the Solitaire de Figaro um, uh, from from New Zealand, and um, I just really hope that I'm not the last. You know, I'm. I'm trying trying to keep the door open behind me and and talk to young people who uh who have any you know questions about uh coming over and doing the same kind of thing or or uh, you know obviously open to sharing my experiences and, and trying to bring some more kiwis over here over here as well hmm. well certainly a lot of people here are following the race um this time around but it's not quite the same not having that um 
New Zealand flag on the, having a Kiwi. Um, the, the, the leaderboard. So um, yeah. we really wish you well in your endeavours to get this campaign off the ground for the next Fondag Globe. Um, before I let you go, uh, I do need to ask you, uh, as I ask everybody, your worst wipeout ever. And I'm guessing there are a few potential candidates for this one. So what is the worst one? Yeah, it was definitely the wipeout that I had in the South uh, Pacific, close to Point Nemo, or you know, halfway between Chile and, and New Zealand. Um, I was I had been slowed down by some technical problems, and I ended up being run over by this massive storm that had sustained fifty-five or sixty knot gusts of, or sustained sixty and then gusting over actually. Um, and I was um, uh, at the helm as the as the sun came up, and I was sort of nursing my my boat through um, through and over and down, you know, surfing these massive swells, and just the whole sea had been. Uh, it was like somebody had had just spilt a big white paint can. You know, it, the whole sea was just white and just. Um, spray would been blown before every gust, and just sort of made me feel like I was more of an Antarctic explorer than anything else. And um, it came charging down this massive, uh, massive wave, you know, trying to keep the boat speed below 25 knots. Um, and we went bang at the bottom of it. Um, and and that's when my four state disconnected. Um, that I think that. Um, a, a securing pin of the four stay pin had failed, um, and the the shock with, at the bottom of that wave um, was enough to to dislodge the the four stay pin, and so I had this um, sixty knot sustained of wind and uh, a hundred and sixty square meter uh, sail filled up on a four stay that was then hanging limply, um, and things got out of control really quickly. You know, the 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 sail. Uh, started flapping around and then unfurled itself from the stay that that was then attached to the the top of the mast, but uh, not to the boat itself. And so it started whipping itself around like a um, like a like this crazy crazy whip. And I can still hear the crackle of the uh, of the sail material as it disintegrated above my head. Um, and just you know, I've done. Um, tens of thousands of, of miles at, at sea in these open 60s and I feel really at home in them and I feel you know that despite the fact that they're big boats they're they're pretty you know, it's a pretty good scale um, you know everything the loads are pretty manageable uh, and the way of sailing them is is pretty manageable but then that that was just this realization of oh boy you know the there are things here that I just cannot control. You know, the the sail was too big, the wind was too much, and the situation was getting out of control pretty quickly. Um, and so I had to, um, I, I I put in put in place another four stay while the boat was on its side, blowing over on its side. Um, so clambering around it with the boat at ninety degrees, the mast in the water, uh, trying to secure a new four stay to to save the rig. Um, and then once I put that in place, I went uh, went down below and sheltered inside until um, until the sail had had um, beaten itself to shreds enough that I could recover the forestay. And then um, 
took me a, a lot of work and a couple of days of uh, climbing the rig and up and down, which is which is not very fun to to get the boat functional again. And then I continued on to to Cape Horn, but um, that was certainly one that will uh, live in my memory and in, as my grandmother would say, in vivid Technicolor. Well, you couldn't have picked a more remote place, Point Nemo, the furthest place from any civilization on the planet. I think you're closer to the moon than a civilization at that point, aren't you? Um, Certainly the, the space station, yes. Yeah. So what, I mean, just what would have happened? Let's say you'd lost the rig. Um, you're still on the boat. What are your chances? What are you, what's, you're just hoping that there's a ship nearby? What, how do you get to safety? Yeah, the, the South, uh, South Pacific is, is really tricky um, because obviously you're incredibly isolated, but then, you know, had I built the same jury rig uh, that I ended up building in the Atlantic, I could have certainly uh, approached land. Um, and obviously the, the downwind route takes you into, um, takes you towards Cape Horn, but that is infamous for being a, a sort of rocky, desolate outcrop and, and, and actually... Uh, the closest port of Ushuaia um, is up along channel um, and uh, is incredibly tidal with lots of currents. Um, and so it's certainly not a given that I would have been able to, to sail myself back to safety. Um, so I certainly could have got myself out of the middle of the ocean, but you know, it would have been pretty tricky logistically and um, to, to get either rescue myself or get rescued um, once I arrived at the other, at the other end. So, um, yeah, it doesn't really bear thinking about that one, but, uh, it, it would have been a long, slow, long, slow, and very lonely, uh, trek, uh, back to civilization. There's probably some people listening, thinking you don't call yourself crazy, but yeah, this guy's a bit crazy <laughs> and, he, and he wants to go back and, and do this all again. I want to go back. Uh, and, and for me, it's the most logical thing in the world that I want to go back because, uh, as I said, I didn't feel like I was able to fully demonstrate what I was able, uh, what I was capable of, of achieving in the last race because of the challenges that I had. Um, so I want to go back and 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 write a, a better. I don't know if it'll be better, but sort of uh, write a different story for the next participation. Well, we wish you all the best with that um, in the next couple of years, putting the campaign together, and then. Uh, hopefully watching you in the race as well. So, Conrad, um, really appreciate your time and um, and your insight into um, single-handed racing in the Vendée Globe. Thanks very much. It's, it's a, always a great opportunity to tell my story and hopefully light the fire for the next generation. Well, that's it for another episode of Broadreach Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you've got any feedback, then you can email me at michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz. Otherwise, I'll catch you with the next episode in a fortnight. Take care.